John chapter 6, verse 15 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus was not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. All right, so this morning we, um, we come to another sign that Jesus performs here in John 6. And if you just read John 6 straight through, this sign seems out of place. Um, because you have the feeding of the 5,000 up until really verse 15. And then you have from verse 22 through the rest of the chapter, Jesus explaining the significance of that sign that he did in feeding the 5,000. And right in between, you have this account of Jesus' disciples going down to the sea, getting caught in a storm, and Jesus walking on the water. And you're almost left wondering, if you just read it straight through, why is this here? If I were to take this account of Jesus walking on the water and just remove it from this chapter, the rest of the chapter would still flow just fine. You know, there could be a short statement about the disciples and Jesus crossing the lake to go to the other side and then pick up right in verse 22 and it all makes sense. But that's not how John has constructed this gospel, right? We learn in John 20 verse 30 that there were many things John could have written about The things that Jesus did, there were many signs that could have been written about that Jesus did. uh, So many that they probably wouldn't even fit inside all the books of the world, John says. Just hyperbolically speaking there. But John had a very uh, particular reason for including the things that he included in his gospel account here in John, in the gospel of John. And the Holy Spirit has a reason and a purpose even in the way that those events are presented to us. Now, in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, we're told that there is a direct connection between the glory that Jesus revealed of himself in the feeding of the 5,000 and the glory of Jesus that's revealed in walking on the water. And the disciples did not gain insight from what Jesus had done feeding the 5,000, and therefore their hearts were hardened, and they couldn't see truly what Jesus was doing as he was walking on the water until the very end. They, they could not discern. They didn't have enough insight to discern what was happening in those moments. So I bring that up just to say the scriptures say that these two events are connected. And the question that we want to ask is, is, is how are they connected? What, what is that connection between them? And maybe as we begin to look at that, why don't we bow our heads to the Lord together as, as a body and ask for his blessing that he would help us understand the connection between these two significant signs that Jesus has done. Father, we thank you that you have graciously and mercifully sent forth your son. You sent him into this world so that he might demonstrate and put on display the glory of our triune God through his life and in his ministry, in his death and in his resurrection. Father, we thank you that through your son, you are causing your name to be hallowed in the earth. We here at Oak Ridge are demonstrations of your faithfulness in causing the sanctity and the holiness of your name to be made known in the earth. Lord, we are those who have been awakened. Believers in this room are those who have been awakened to see and to taste 
your holiness and your goodness and to come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, Lord. We do pray that you would continue that work in our hearts, even this morning. It's not enough simply to have come to salvation, Lord. We need your grace to continue working in our lives through sanctification all the way unto glorification, that day when we are made perfect through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we need you to come. We need you to minister to our souls where we are. We need you to fill us with your spirit. We need you to give us understanding and insight into your word. Lord, we are hopeless and helpless without you. And just as you do with these disciples here, Lord, I I know that you, you work in our lives to bring us into desperate and helpless situations so that we might more fully see your glory. And with purer hearts and and sincere, more sincere intentions find ourselves willing to receive you, to be with you, Lord, and to worship you. And so please, Father, through, through everything that's going on in this world, or in light of everything that's going on in this world, whether the events in Israel, what we're speaking of, or various issues relating to the suffering of your people around this world, Lord, our our own struggles and the oppression that we feel here in in our country, growing and increasing, the challenges that we face in our workplaces, the tough decisions that have to be made, the, the costly stances that must be taken in order to be faithful to you. Lord, we, in order to do any of that and in order to keep our minds fixed upon things above and not distracted from you by all these things, The only way that that can happen is if you come and minister afresh to our souls this morning. Strengthen us with your grace and help us fix our eyes on Jesus as we run this race set before us. So Lord, please, in some supernatural, glorious way, this morning, would you please help us see the the magnificence and the splendor of Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm, coming and commanding his disciples not to be afraid. Lord, we ask you to be with us, to minister to us for his sake and for his glory, for our love for him and our service to him. Amen. Amen. All right, so what's the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus Walking on the water, getting in the boat, and making that boat immediately go to the place where they were trying to get, to which they were trying to go. I'm not sure that I have all of it worked out. But it seems that this miracle and the miracle of, the fi- of feeding of the 5,000 are both designed to show the glory of Christ to Christ's disciples in a unique way. And not just to to put on display the glory of Christ, but also to, in in the display and the demonstration of Christ's glory, to draw out of his disciples their faith so that it can be tested and it can be perfected. I mean, that's that's what the feeding of the 5,000 was all about, right? It wasn't just about getting food to a bunch of hungry, needy people in the crowd. It was was about uh, John 6, 6. It was about the Lord testing his disciples, drawing out of them their faith, seeing where that faith would, how far would that faith go before it stumbled, and then providing assurance and reasons for why that faith should increase and continue in him, to rise, to to walk with the Lord more faithfully and more fully. Well, that seems to be what's going on here in this miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Again, the disciples find themselves in a desperate situation, albeit far more desperate than simply not having food to feed a crowd. Here, they're faced with a situation where their very lives are at stake. The Lord has put them into this situation where their only hope is that Jesus, as their great shepherd, would come through for them and protect them. Otherwise, they perish. I think that's the connection between these two. These are two ways in which the Lord is drawing out 
in increasing the faith of the disciples by using difficult circumstances and showing himself faithful in the midst of it. So there are three things, three main points we want to look at today. Um, First of all, we're going to notice their dangerous situation as John presents it here. Secondly, we're going to notice what their situation reveals about their Savior. And then thirdly, we're going to notice the immediate results of what happened. So their dangerous situation, their Savior, the immediate results. And then some concluding application. So first of all, notice the dangerous situation the disciples found themselves in. Verses 16 and 17. Now when evening had come, the disciples went down to the sea. After getting into a boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. Verse 17 goes on to say, It had already become dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now, a few things that might help us visualize the scene here. Um, as we've said before, this is taking place on the eastern, maybe, maybe the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And I actually have a picture up here to help you see what the terrain is like on this side of the sea. Could you click on that? So this is actually further towards the north, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So there's more land in between the seashore and and that rise right there, that hill. But if you move further south, more towards just direct east, that that, uh, hillside comes far closer to the shoreline. So this is the kind of terrain where Jesus is, is withdrawing from the crowd and he's going up into the mountain. The disciples are going down into the sea. This is maybe what that looks like at that that point, just to help you get a picture of what's happening there. Now, verse 16 and 17 tell us that the disciples came down to the sea and got into a boat to cross the sea and go to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was probably about five to six miles across the Sea of Galilee from where it's believed that Jesus fed the 5,000. So you, they're going to row five miles, six miles at night across the sea in order to get to Capernaum. And experienced fishermen were among them, so they knew how to navigate these waters. They knew where they were going. They were very, very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Um, so they go down to the sea and they get into a boat, and that boat probably looked like this one. If you can see that, uh, I tried to find one that would, that would visualize it, uh, or at least was big enough for you to see it on the TV up here. Uh, this, this is a boat that's about 26 feet long. It would be 8 feet wide at its widest point and about 5 feet deep. And we get those measurements from an actual boat that was found in 1986 uh, uh, near the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. It had been preserved in the mud under the water for almost 2,000, well, for 2,000 years. They date it back to either the 1st century B.C. or 1st century A.D. But it would be right at the time of Christ whenever uh, this boat was actually being used. And it, it sunk, apparently, felt, uh, went down into the mud and dirt or whatever and was preserved in the water. Well, they found that in 1986, took measurements, and that would be about the average size of a boat that the disciples might be in. All right, so they come down, they get in this boat, and evening had come. They got into a boat probably similar to this one, and they were making their way from the eastern side of the lake uh, northwest towards Capernaum. Now, notice some of the ways that John presents the danger of the situation. It's actually presented in, in like, the, the, the situation becomes increasingly dangerous as John describes the scene. So, first of all, and this is probably the most important uh, danger that the disciples would have been experiencing at this time, though it may not have been, been what they perceived at the beginning. The first danger that, that, that John begins to describe is this sense of separation between Jesus and his disciples. It starts with this sense of separation between Jesus and his disciples. You remember in verse 15, where is Jesus going at this point? He's not going down to the sea. He's going up. He's going to and further up into the mountain, right? that, that hillside. Now, verse 16, where are the disciples going? 
they're going down. Down into uh, the sea. And so it seems that, that as we read this account, we're supposed to feel from the very beginning a sense of separation that's now occurring between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is going up the mountain. The disciples are going down into the valley. Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Here we find Jesus going up into the mountain and the disciples going down to the sea, which is at a low point in the valley of the Jordan River. They're going down into the valley. They're going down at night, shadow. They're going out into the sea, which in the Old Testament very often depicts or gives a picture of death. It's chaos. Very often it's used to Sheol, the realm of the dead, or even sometimes hell itself is depicted in terms of waters and sea. Right? It's a place of judgment and instability. So here the disciples are going down into this valley, into the shadow of darkness, getting into a boat and launching out into the sea. And verse 17 tells us that in the beginning, it seems like they waited around for Jesus to join them. Like they may have waited for just a bit to see if Jesus was actually going to come to them. And then Jesus, whenever they realized he hadn't come and he probably wasn't going to come anytime soon and it was already dark, they knew that they needed to get going so they could get across the sea. And so they went ahead and set off on this journey without him. So that's where the danger begins. Secondly, John presents this scene as with, with language that, that shows us there's this increasing sense of darkness, where darkness is increasing around the disciples. So it was evening whenever they went down to the sea, and by the time they launched the boat, verse 17 says, it had already become dark. So the sun's gone down, there's no more light, and that's a scary thing, to be out on a huge lake or out in the sea at night. I don't know if you've ever been there, but they weren't on one of these nice big pleasure cruise boats that lit up everything for 500 yards around it, you know? Uh, There were no street lights burning in the villages around the lake, Uh, maybe just a fire here and there, but nothing that would enable them to, to make out the shoreline or to see distinct features off in the distance. It's dark, it's pitch black, and they're out there in the Sea of Galilee alone. That, to me, that feels terrifying. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And I guarantee you, had they seen a storm coming on the horizon, they would not have gotten out in the sea. Let's keep that in mind. Number three, third, third way the danger of their situation is being presented, the sea was being stirred up because of a strong wind. Verse 18. Now, strong wind, literally, it's, it's a, a great wind, uh, a powerful wind. And, and don't just think about like a strong gust coming by and doing, doing uh, some damage maybe in five minutes or something like that, and then it's over. We're talking about a sustained, strong, heavy wind that was descending upon the Sea of Galilee. Now, the geography of this area, the geography of this region causes storms like this to come up suddenly and without warning. Uh, there's a, I actually have a, there it is. I don't know if you can see this, but you can, you can see it's kind of a plane off to the east, and then it's the same way off to the west, a little bit of mountainous area over there. But, but what happens is that wind comes across that plane, and then just once it hits that depression that's almost 700 feet further down than the, than the top of those hills, it it just kind of sh- swoops down into that, in, into that flat area upon the lake. And so what happens as that, land, or as that air comes down off the plain or from the Mediterranean Sea, it blows across the land and then drops hundreds of feet down onto the lake surface. And it actually gains speed as it drops down because of a tunnel effect that takes place. All, all along the sea, you can see these ravines and these valleys that have been carved in by erosion over the years. As the wind enters into those eroded areas, it actually acts like a tunnel effect. 
Uh, or if you think about being on like a roller coaster, the front of the roller coaster, wild thing, love wild thing, right? You get up on the top and, and it's going, it's going. If, if you're in the front, right as you begin to descend down that hill, it's almost like you're being drugged because the back cars are holding you up. They're not over that, that point yet. They're not free falling. But once, once the back cars get over that point, the front cars just pull the back cars down and you feel in the back like you're going faster because there's less resistance, you have more weight dragging you down. It's the same way with wind. When it descends like that and it goes through this tunnel effect, the wind that's dropping down in the front begins this, almost begins to suck the air behind it into this uh, faster speed. And so once that hits the lake surface, waves can reach up to 15 to 20 feet high, um, which may not sound like a lot if you're out on the sea, like an actual ocean, but when you're on a lake like this in a boat that's 26 feet long, a 20-foot wave coming by is terrifying. Jamie would know that. I won't, I won't tell them. I'll let you tell them. They can come ask you about it. I actually, I read in a report about a windstorm that arose on the Sea of Galilee in May of 2022. This windstorm came about just, on, just in an instant, totally unexpected, hit the Sea of Galilee with winds, sustained winds in excess of 90 miles an hour, sweeping across the surface. Uh, it was driving up waves in the sea 20 feet high, and a surge came about all the way over to the other side of the lake and hit the city of Tiberias and wound up doing about $50 million in damage to its ports uh, right there at the sea shore. And so that's the kind of situation that the disciples were facing. They were out in the water, they're in the dark, they're in the midst of a life-threatening storm, and without Jesus. And then lastly, notice verse 19, the danger of their situation. They were unable to make progress. These winds were so strong that they weren't even able, with all 12 men rowing with all of their might, they weren't able to make any headway. And more than likely what happened, they were out in the middle of the sea or at least maybe a couple miles in when this storm descended upon them and then they were trying to continue to make their way through it, right? Because if they, if they turned and a wave hit them the right way, it would capsize the boat. So you have to be very careful about how you're directing your boat through waves in, in a storm like that. So more than likely this storm hit while they were at or near the middle of the lake. It says that they had rowed about 25 to 30 stadia, um, a stadia. One, I don't know, I don't know the singular form of that, stadium, that'd be right? Yeah, okay. One stadium is 606.75 feet. So who can do the math? 25 stadia would be 2.9 miles. 35 stadia would be about 3.5, something like that. So they're about three to three and a half miles out in the middle of the sea. Now if they're going on a five to six mile trek or trip through the sea, and they're at about three miles, they're right in the middle, right, right in the middle, uh, not, not near land at all. Now that puts them smack dab in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and if the boat had capsized, there would be no way for any of them to survive. Uh, the boat, the, the waves would not only bring the boat down underwater, it would not let them swim three and a half miles to shore. It would swamp them and bring them down. So that's their situation. They're in the middle of the lake. The wind and the waves are against them so strongly that 12 men straining at the oars could not make any headway. It's dark and Jesus was absent. And keep in mind something important about this. Who instigated this scenario? Matthew chapter 14 verse 22 tells us that Jesus is actually the one who made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him. So the only reason they're out here in the Sea of Galilee, in the midst of a windstorm, in the dark, without Jesus, is because Jesus made them go without him. If, if Jesus had done that to me, I think I probably would be asking, Lord, don't you care if I perish? That's what they did ask him at a different point, didn't they? In other words, Jesus purposefully sent his disciples into this dangerous situation. Now, why would he do that? 
Why would he send them into danger? Doesn't his love mean that he doesn't send us into danger? We love our children. We love our nieces and nephews. We love our friends. We love our spouses. And we love our neighbor. And that means we don't purposefully send them into dangerous situations. Why did Jesus do that? Well, I think it's primarily because of what he wanted to accomplish in them, right? See, (laughs) this is not in my notes. It's dangerous, but... Jesus is more concerned with perfecting your sanctification than he is with your safety. I don't know if you know that. Jesus is more concerned with your sanctification growing and increasing and your love for him increasing, your faith in him becoming more solid and more firm. He's far more concerned about that than he is about you living a cushy, safe life. Now, our culture capitalizes on the fact that we all want to preserve our lives. We want to have safety. We want comfort. We want to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease. But as the hymn says, the Lord calls others to travel to heaven through bloody seas. Seas of trials, seas seas of desperate circumstances and situations. And Jesus loves you enough to bring you into that situation, to test you and to try you. And ultimately, as he's going to do with these disciples, to bring you to an end of yourself so that you find his sufficiency to be enough for you. See, what's being pictured in this scene is is really this this picture of increasing helplessness. There's this progress of, of helplessness where the disciples are being confronted one step at a time with the depth of their inability to handle or manage or change their circumstances. And that's the very reason why Jesus sent them out into the sea to begin with. The same reality, right? The same reality that he was confronting them with when he fed the 5,000. Their helplessness to address the situation. That's the exact same reality he's confronting them with here on the sea. It's just that the stakes are higher. It's not about food. It's about my life. Yes, Jesus is enough to come through when everyone needs food. Jesus is enough to provide the food for everyone who needs it. But is He enough to save me, to actually save my life from this kind of circumstance? The disciples had to come to understand that He was. And the only way for them to understand that He was, was to be put in the situation where that's their only hope. That's what Jesus was doing here. He's putting them in a desperate situation in order to bring them in greater measure to an end of themselves. He used this storm to bring them in greater measure to an end of themselves and to make them feel even more potently their powerlessness to meet the demands of their situation without Christ. See, their faith in Christ can only grow as their faith in themselves decreased. And many of you who have walked with Christ for a number of years, you have walked with Him long enough by now to recognize that in this account, there is an analogy of the Christian life. Living the Spirit-filled life is not all sunshine and lollipops. We think it's going to be like that. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Provide for all my needs. Give me that life, that job, that car, that spouse. Give me the situations that I'm longing for. That'll make me happy. That'll help me trust in you. You know, if Jesus only ever gave us all the things that we want, our trust in him would be as shallow as those things themselves. Just like last week, right? People came to Jesus. They wanted to make him king because he could provide for everything that they wanted. If he had submitted to that, then Jesus would not truly have been the king that they needed him to be. 
It would have been a king after their own making, not a king that God had appointed for them. See, living a, a spirit-filled life, it's not, it's, not, it's not about ease and comfort. It is joyful. It is a joyful life. It's filled with all kinds of good things that the Lord gives us to enjoy. But that joyfulness does not come through the ease of our circumstances and situations. The joyfulness of the Christian life is matured within our souls by our faith being forged through the heat of our circumstances and the demoralizing hammer of our helplessness. That's what God's going to use to perfect you, beloved. It's going to be a growing and increasing sense of your utter powerlessness to do anything. I hear Christians as they grow in their walk with Christ lament, oh, I used to be far more spiritual than I am now. That's not a good way to think about that, guys. You are always just as unspiritual as you see yourself to be right now. It's just now you've grown and you can see it more clearly. You were always as bad as you think you are now. And Jesus loved you. You're worse than you think you are now. You think you know yourself? You don't know yourself. You wait. You wait until trying circumstances come. You wait until people are pounding on your door with a gun. You wait until the government comes to confiscate your property. You just wait. Then you're going to see how bad you actually are. And you know what? Even in the depths, in the worst expressions of your evil and your depravity, Jesus has loved you and given himself for you. His love does not change. It's it's the hammer. Your, Your inability to do anything for the Lord is the hammer that he's going to use to hammer the pride out of your life. The self-reliance that you have. And you know where you know where that's going to climax? Your entire life, you're going to be faced with trials. You're going to be faced, Jesus is going to send you out onto that sea, knowing that he is going to bring a storm upon you, and your only hope is going to be him coming through for you. Jesus is going to do that on purpose. And he's going to keep doing that until you meet, until you reach that final storm that's coming, when you meet death. And you come to take your last breath. Even there, Jesus is going to be using your helplessness, your inability even to keep yourself alive. He's going to be using that to sanctify you. And to show you that he's trustworthy even in that storm. He's enough for you. Even when you are not enough for yourself, Jesus will show himself to be enough for you. Right? Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. And when everything fails that I'm leaning upon and there's nothing left under my feet, even there the hand of God will be upholding me. And I'll see His faithfulness. And so will you. How many times do we find ourselves, even in difficult situations, lamenting a sense of the Lord's absence? Isn't that what the disciples had here? Caught in trial, caught in turmoil, and, and, and they are without Christ. What is the Lord doing in those times? Well, he's doing exactly what he's doing here with these disciples. He's bringing us into situations that confront us with our utter lack of ability to control our situation in order to bring us just one more step closer to coming to the end of ourselves and trusting in Christ more than ourselves. That's the only way, beloved, that's the only way that your faith in Christ will grow. As your faith in yourself is diminished. And the most effective way to do that and to accomplish that work in us is to put us in situations that we can't control. But I do want to say something before I move on from this point. I want to say something else relating to that. These difficult situations that the Lord will bring us in are not only situations designed to bring us to an end of ourselves, they're also situations that are designed to help us see more clearly and more fully the glory of Christ. See, it's, it's when we are confronted with our, with our helplessness that the sufficiency of Christ comes alongside of us to strengthen us and encourage us. 
Right? This is how you can tell the difference between uh, the shame that the devil is heaping upon you for your own sins and the conviction that the Spirit of the Lord is bringing upon you for your sins. When the devil is bringing shame upon you, it's a shame that's without hope. It's a shame that buries you. You can't see through it to the light. You cannot come to see any hope whenever the devil is coming alongside of you, heaping those accusations upon you, showing you how unfaithful you've been to Christ, helping you see how unworthy you are of the kingdom. When you can't see through that darkness, that's the devil. Because when the Lord comes to convict you of your sin, it is always, always redemptive. It's always to the end that your faith would be put in Christ and not yourself. It's that your eyes would get taken off of you and put upon the glory and the sufficiency of another. That's what Jesus is doing with this situation and with these disciples. Yes, he's bringing them to an end of themselves. They can't row at all. They can't get themselves out of the circumstance. But they're about to see the glory of Jesus in a way that they could never have seen it before had they stayed on the safety of the shoreline. Or had they been rowing across that sea on a stormless night. They wouldn't have seen Christ the way they're about to. Beloved, it's going to be the same with us. If you truly belong to Christ Jesus, which I hope that everyone in this room has settled that question. Are you truly Christ's disciple? Do you love him? Do you trust in him? Do you cast yourself upon him as your only hope? If that is you, then Jesus Christ will never let you live the kind of life that makes you believe you can manage things on your own. The storms of life and in those moments of desperation and trial and adversity that he will bring his people into, when our circumstances have brought us to an end of ourselves, that is when we are in the best posture to see the glory of the Lord revealed to us as he comes to be our deliverer. Right? I mean, this is, this is every account of God's saving acts with the people of Israel recorded in the Old Testament. Backed up to the Red Sea. They have no other option. Egypt's bearing down upon them, and who comes to the, to the rescue? The I am, the great I am. So it is with us as well. All right. So that's the danger of their situation. Now, secondly, notice what their situation revealed about their Savior. Verse 19. When they were out in the middle of the lake, straining at the oars in the wind, in the midst of a windstorm and against the waves, verse 19 says, they saw Jesus walking on the water and drawing near. <laughs> Man. Now this is, Mark 6.48 tells us this was about the fourth watch of the night. So that's, that's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And just to give you some perspective, at this time of the year, around the Passover, the sun sets almost right at 6 o'clock. So they've been out in the sea for nine hours, at least, rowing against these waves, trying to keep themselves alive. You can imagine they're stressed. They're at the end of their rope. They're ready to probably throw it in, throw in the towel. And then all of a sudden, they see this thing walking towards them on these 20-foot waves, and they think it's a ghost. Right? Isn't that what Matthew 14, 26 tells us? They were terrified. They were filled with fear because they thought they were seeing a ghost coming towards them. Now, don't, don't get all hoity-toity. You know that you would be thinking the exact same thing if you were out on that lake and something was coming towards you walking on the water. Because physical, like flesh and blood, real, genuine people don't walk on water. That's what I would be thinking if I were in that situation. Naturally speaking, physical flesh and blood people don't walk on water. And so very likely, these disciples were filled with fear because they thought that this was a signal of their end. A spirit had come to usher them into the afterlife. More than likely, that's what was going on. It would be terrifying enough just to see someone out there walking on the water alone, right? 
without the storm, without the waves. But here in verse 20, Jesus comes to them and he says, it says he drew near to the boat. So he's walking towards them. That, that, parentheses. You know what that shows us? These guys are three miles offshore in a little boat that I guarantee you could not be spotted very easily in the daytime. And here it is at night with all kinds of waves going up and down and wind blowing. And Jesus walks right to where they are. That tells me he never took his eyes off of them. He was always aware of exactly where they were and what they were going through. Even while he was absent in their perception. In parentheses. Jesus comes to them and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now this is a poor translation. Does anyone else have a translation that says, I am? Do not be afraid. Because that's what it says. This is one of those famous ego I me statements. Right? And while it can be used to say, yes, it's me, I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here as he's walking upon the water demonstrating qualities of Yahweh. We're going to see it often in this gospel that, that this is one of the ways Jesus likes to designate himself. He is the I am, but normally he follows I am with what's called a predicate nominative. Right, so, so I am is a being verb. It requires another thing to be added to the end of that, which is normally, like in Greek, it would be in the, in the subject case, if that matters to any of you. So, for example, I am what? I am the bread of life. I am what? I am the light of the world. I am, I am what? I am the gate. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. Right? Jesus says all of those things. But every now and then, Jesus lets the phrase, I am, stand on its own. He doesn't give that answer to, I am what? He simply says, I am. So in John 8, 24, right? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is telling us, unless we believe that he is Yahweh of the Old Testament, we're going to die in our sins because we don't truly know God. Uh, 8.58, John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. Well, I am what? What are you saying of yourself? No, I'm saying I am before Abraham even was. Or in John 18, this is one of my favorites, right? John 18, the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus and they say, Jesus says, who are you looking for? He knew who they were looking for. Who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am. And what did those soldiers do in response? Now, you see what was happening there. Jesus was manifesting the reality of his divine nature through the power of his spoken word. And those soldiers involuntarily responded with the right response. They bowed their knee before the I am. Right? And doesn't that show the control that Jesus had even in that moment? Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down freely of his own accord. But he says to his disciples as he comes to their boat, I am. The very same power that led to humbling those soldiers is the power that leads to comforting his disciples, giving them peace. We'll see that in just a second. Notice what he says next. He says, I am, do not be afraid. Why were they not to be afraid? It's not because the winds had died down. We have no hint that the waves have stopped rising and falling at this point. In fact, right after this, in Matthew 14, we find Peter saying, Lord, if it's really you, then you command me to come out on the water. And remember when his faith failed, it was when he saw the wind and the waves. So the wind and the waves are still going on. Why, why is Jesus saying, don't be afraid? 
Was it because the darkness had passed? No, it was still dark. Jesus told them, don't be afraid, because the I am was with them. (laughs) Jesus is there. God the Son is with them. And in all His infinite, eternal power, He is for them. Right? This is one of the first verses that, I, that, I, that I've taught my children growing up at night. You know how children are always afraid of the dark. Or were. Right? Right? Is this okay? Can I share this? So they were often very afraid of the dark. They didn't want, didn't want us to go for various reasons. Each of them had their own reason for being afraid of the dark. But one of the first verses that we taught them was um, the verse from Psalms, Psalm 56.3, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Why don't we substitute for man there, what can waves do to me? What can the wind do to me? What can all the persecution and opposition of the world do to me if the I am is with me? Jesus says, don't be afraid because the I am is here. You have no reason to be afraid. You know, and think about that for a moment. Those waves had the power to take the disciples down and kill them. Persecution in Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body and afterward can't do anything. Rather, fear him who can kill the body and after killing the body can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear him. You know what that tells us? That our lack of fear towards the world is not because they can't do anything to us. Not be afraid. Don't be afraid. That command did not come to these disciples because they didn't have a reason to be afraid. There were reasons to be fearful in that time, but the one who was with them was sufficient enough to overcome their reasons to be afraid. They could face their challenges because he was with them. This is what this miracle is proving, right? As Jesus is walking out on the water, it's proving that he is the I am, isn't it? Job chapter 9, verse 8, who alone treads upon the high places of the waters? God. Psalm 77, verse 19, it's Yahweh alone whose way is in the sea, whose path is upon the mighty waters, and whose footprints in the waters are not known. It's only God who can command water molecules to bind together so firmly and so tightly that they actually become a platform on which to walk. And here Jesus is demonstrating before the disciples' eyes that he is the I am, the very one whom those Old Testament passages were talking about. And in the fullness of who he is, he has stepped down into the danger of their situation in order to be with them and in order to shepherd them through it. He says, don't be afraid. The I am is with you. You have nothing to fear. Psalm 93, verse 4 is an interesting one to attach to this. I won't won't explain it, but let me just read it. The rivers rivers may be lifted up, O Yahweh. They may lift up their voices and lift up their pounding waves in the presence of Yahweh, but more than the voices of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, Yahweh on high is mighty. That's Jesus right here in John 6. Jesus, Yahweh, is mighty. And he will not be conquered by the rains, by the waves of the sea, and neither will he let the rivers and waters overwhelm his disciples. So that's what they learn of their Savior. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He is Yahweh. And he's come to take care of his disciples. And I notice finally the immediate results. Verse 21. There are two immediate results that follow. Verse 21 First of all, because of what they saw and what Jesus said to them, the disciples, it says, they were willing to receive him into the boat. Now, doesn't that seem like an unnecessary comment? In fact, Mark 6.51, it just says that he got in the boat. He didn't wait for their permission. He didn't ask, hey, do you want me to come in the boat with you? He just got in. 
And yet here it says, John makes an emphasis on this seemingly unnecessary detail that when they saw Jesus, when they heard what he said, he's walking on the water, he's the I am, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to receive him into the boat. Why did John say that? Well, it seems to me that John is communicating the impact that this event had upon the faith of the disciples. See, because you remember this contrast. If you pick up on language in John, John is always drawing contrast between those who are not believers and those who are. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus healed the paralytic and then he explains his relationship with the Father in such high and lofty uh, descriptions of, of, of who he is to the Father. And what did he say of the Jewish leaders that he was speaking to in John 5? He says, the Old Testament testifies about me, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life, or you are not willing to receive me. Well, here in John 6, the disciples were entirely willing to receive Jesus. See, the danger of their situation and the glory Christ had revealed of himself to them through it created within them a greater attachment to Christ. See, it's when, as they were being more overwhelmed by their helplessness in the midst of this uncontrollable situation, and as Jesus comes to meet their helplessness with the revelation of who he is for them, that's when their, their attachment to Jesus in faith increased. They found in themselves a greater willingness to receive him. Not only did they welcome him, they received him. Matthew 14.33 actually says that this event is what caused them first to recognize that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And they worshipped him as a result of what they understood after this event. He's God of God. He's light of light. He's very God of very God. And he's walking to them on the sea in the man Jesus Christ. Now, we may not see the same things with our physical eyes that the disciples saw, but when the Holy Spirit illumines the eyes of our hearts, we see truths about Christ just as powerfully. You may not ever be out on Lake Superior in the middle of the night and a windstorm come down and see Jesus walking on the water towards you. That, may, that, that will never happen to you. Okay, I'll just throw it out there. It's not going to happen. Jesus is in heaven until the time of restoration, Acts 3, 19 and 20. So he's not going to come physically walk on Lake Superior with you. But through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, the reality of what we see here in Christ does become real to every single believer, as real as if we saw it happen with our own eyes. Do you know the truth of that? See, the more, the, the, okay, no one is ever going to willingly receive Christ until they are awakened to see him for who he is. That's what Jesus is doing out here in the sea. He's awakening his disciples in the midst of the chaos to see who he is more fully so that they would receive him with greater sincerity. No one is ever going to receive Jesus until they are enabled to see him for who he is. Like the religious leaders of John 5 and this, and this crowd in John 6, we might see Jesus do amazing things. We might hear preachers talk about the amazing teachings of Jesus. We might even read about them in the Bible and have some notional sense that they're real and they're true. But until our souls are actually awakened to see Christ in his glory, we're going to miss it. Just like these people did who saw these things happen with their own eyes and yet walked away unbelieving. Not the disciples, but the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you this, I know I need, to, I need to move to my last point, but this not only applies at the beginning of the Christian life, you're not going to become a believer until Christ helps you see who he truly is, but this is the way that the Christian life is sustained to the very end. 
by seeing more clearly the glory of who Jesus is as time goes on. In your Christian life, you should be seeing more clearly the glory of Jesus or you should be more, more, you should be, uh, more burdened to strive after seeing the glory of Jesus. If you want to grow in your willingness and in your ability to hold fast to Christ and to walk through this life with all its trials and its de desperate circumstances in a manner that truly honors the Lord, then you have to see more of His glory with greater and greater fullness. Uh, this is the task of, of the Christian life, and I hope, that you, I hope you understand that. What was Paul's great ambition in Philippians chapter 3? It wasn't simply to remember the revelation of Jesus Christ that he had received back in Acts chapter 9. No, his present concern was that he would be pressing after the Lord more fully and more ardently so that he might come to know him more clearly, more surely, that he might have uh, the hope of Christ more soundly resolved in his own soul. That's what Paul lived for. That's what you and I are called to live for. It's only as we see the glory of Christ more clearly that we will live more faithfully for him. So that's the first thing we see, we see as a result. The disciples were more willing. They were made willing to receive Jesus. And then secondly, you notice lastly, verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As soon as Jesus got in the boat with them, the boat instantly arrived at Capernaum. You know, it's interesting. Here's, here's an application of that. The Lord can accomplish in a single moment what we can't accomplish in a whole night of rowing. Right? You know, the, the broader application of that is it's when the Lord is with us that we get to where the Lord wants us to be. It's never us working in our own strength that gets us to where the Lord wants us to be. It's the Lord with us that brings us to where we need to be. That's John 15. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That's our work. Abiding in Christ. Uh, as we're going to see next week, laboring for the food that does not perish, but the food that endures to eternal life, which is believing upon the one whom he sent. We'll see that. Now, John keeps this detail. And the boat was immediately at the place where they were going. He keeps that detail because it's an important part of what Jesus was teaching his disciples through this miracle. Just like the detail about the Lord making the crowd lie down in green grass, just like that was connecting back to Psalm 23, well, this detail connects back to another psalm. You might know which one it is. Psalm 107. Let me just read this to you, and you tell me if you recognize the similarities. Psalm 107, starting in verse 24. Those who go down to the ship, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on many waters, they have seen the works of Yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep. He spoke and stirred up a stormy wind, which raised up the waves of the sea. They went up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, and their souls melted away in the midst of the calamity. They staggered and they swayed like a drunken man, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. They didn't know what to do. Verse 28. Then they cried, so when they came to the end of themselves, then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to stand still so that its waves were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet and so he led them to their desired haven. That's the work of the Lord. That's the work of Yahweh. That's the glory of the Lord's works that people who go out to the sea, as is described in Psalm 107, that's the glory of Yahweh that they get to see. And here in John 6, John is telling us that's what we saw Jesus do for us. We beheld the wondrous deeds of Yahweh that night when we were in the deep. We, we, when the stormy wind slammed down upon us, when the waves were going up to the heavens and down to the depths, we were experiencing that same kind of desperate uh, circumstance. 
And we saw the works of Yahweh being done on our behalf, but those works were being done through the hands of Jesus. And that's when they understood more truly, more fully who he is. And that was Christ's point in this whole thing. Now, can I give you three closing applications? Are you okay with that? Some three closing applications. Number one, in every terrifying and helpless situation we face, Jesus always remains the I am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. And so the same Jesus who came to their aid that night saying, I am, is a Jesus whom we worship today. He's never, he's never overcome by the challenges we face in your circumstances, no matter how challenging or difficult, are specifically designed and orchestrated by him to teach you that reality. Your situations are never great, so great that they will overwhelm him. The Lord gives a great promise in Isaiah 43, 1-3. Some of you know this. The Lord promises his people, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn burn you. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's a fantastic promise. And the disciples experienced some of the fulfillment of that promise here in the Sea of Galilee, as depicted in John 6. But here's here's what I want to point out. There's only one way that you and I will come to experience the reality of those promises. We we only come to know that God is truly with us as we pass through the waters by passing through the waters and experiencing God with us. See, we're we're only ever going to know the reality of His promise that the flames will not hurt us if we are actually walking through those flames and seeing them not hurt us because the Lord is faithful. Jesus is always the I am in every circumstance you face. And his intention in bringing you into difficult times is to teach you that reality. But there's only one way for you to find it out. And that's to go through those trying circumstances in order to see his faithfulness in the midst of it. Number two, Jesus Christ will never abandon his disciples to the dangers of their circumstances. He's the one who sent the disciples out in the sea. And he's the one who came to their aid. I know that you know Romans 8, 31 through 39. But it's very applicable to that point. It's a good reminder. It's no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard to you. Right? If God is for you, then no one and nothing can be against you. It's God who gave up his own son on your behalf, right? It's Jesus who died for your sins. It's Jesus who absorbed the wrath of God that stood against you. It was Jesus that took every reason why God could justly afflict you with suffering. Jesus took that. And if he took that away, then who is left to condemn you for any of those things? He freely and graciously gave up his son in our place to take away every reason he would justly afflict us with suffering. And so if God is the one who justifies us and makes us righteous in Christ, declares us righteous in Christ, then who can possibly condemn us? If Jesus died for our sins in our place, and and more than that, if he was the one who was raised from his sufferings in our place then what could ever come against us to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Paul says, could affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Even death itself, Paul says, will never be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the point is, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross on your behalf, there is never a situation or circumstance you will face where Jesus will abandon you. Even if it means that in your faithfulness to him, you are brought to the point of persecution and martyrdom. Even in that moment, Jesus will not forsake you. He will be faithful to you to the very end. That is the only way we can learn to be content in Christ in every circumstance that we face. 
by going through difficult, trying circumstances and finding that his faithfulness will never fail us. Number three, we must also remember that even though he will never abandon us to the dangers of our circumstances, that does not mean he will remove the difficulties of our circumstances. Acts 14.22, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no other way into the kingdom of heaven except through the path of suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, we will find that they actually become tools in the hand of Christ to carve upon our souls the indelible marks of his grace. Trials are the refiner's fire in the fuller soap that Jesus Christ uses to purify your faith. They are what he brings upon you and what he brings you into as the means that do a work in your soul that will make you counted worthy for the kingdom of God. And so take heart, beloved, the Jesus who came to his disciples on the sea will be the same Jesus who comes to our aid in every circumstance we face. Let's put our faith in him and trust in him for who he is. Lord, we do pray for your grace and your help to do that. Lord, I could go on for hours and never, never come to the point where I feel that I have preached your truth the way it ought to be preached. But Lord, you can do in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what I could never do with the labor of hours. And so please, Lord, be gracious to us. Satisfy our souls in you. Stir our hearts up with affections for you. And help us go forth and live faithful, godly, holy lives for the glory of your name today and the rest of the week. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in closing, let me give you a benediction. If you would like to stand, you're welcome to stand. You don't need to. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. That's our great hope. The testimony of the gospel. And we go forth in that hope. Amen. Amen. May you go in peace.